Welcome again to another reading titled African Negro Slave Revolts. And this is chapter five, section one. I'd like, thank everybody that's listening to today's broadcast. So let's get into this reading. Chapter five Further Cause of Rebellion. Three factors other than those already mentioned, appeared to have had some influence in promoting slave unrest. A relatively increase in the number of Negroes as compared with that of the whites acuting or accentuating the dangers arising from the former industrialization and urbanization were phenomenal that made the control of slaves more difficult. And perhaps most important, economic depression brings increased harshness, sharpened tempers, forced liquidation of estates, including human beings involved, and more widespread leasing of slaves induced by rebelliousness. Now, mind you, during the time there was a depression going on in the 1800s. And as I go further into the reading, you're going to understand why there was such a depression during that time. And remember, movies like 12 Years a Slave did depict this depression. If y'all go back and watch that movie. But that's not important right now. Only to the reading right now is more important. It has been that the presence of a large number of Negroes, free and slave, invoke expression of fear and implied measures of precaution. On the part of the master from the 17th through the 19th century, in our discussion of the plots and uprisings, we shall examine the relative population figures. Here it is a sufficient for us to notice that areas of dense Negro populations, particularly areas showing a recent ascension where very frequently the center of unrest, while no casual relationships between these phenomena can be demonstrated, yet contemporary observed believes that such a relationship did exist, and the later investigators find a reason for occurrence in that conclusion. The early acquisition of knowledge, the greater possibilities of association, and the great confidence and assurance that city life and mechanical and industrial pursuits develop as compared with country life and Algorian activity or Algorian activities were widely recognized as dangers associated with the growth of a large urban slave population. A work published as early as 1779 emphasized that facts mentioning not only the greater ease of association and acquisition of knowledge, but also the belief that urban slaves might acquire with comparative facilities dangerous quantitatives of arms and ammunition. Following the Vesey plot of 1822, which originated and centered in Charleston and which was inspired largely by mechanical workers, many suggestions for more 
effective slave control were offered among these the following is noteworthy the great fundamental principles should be that the slave should be kept as much as possible to agricultural labor these so implied are found to be the most orderly and obedient of slaves there should be no black mechanics or artisan at least in the cities hmm that's interesting so i'm not sure if they're saying that the slave was more dangerous in a city than found to be in the what do you call countryside or what we call rural areas but let's continue this idea was constantly emphasized between 1850 and 1860 while urbanization and industrialization made some progress in the south opposition of the non-slaveholders whites to bearbond control became acute and slave unrest notably and cities grew quite dangerously or quite dangerous Frederick Law of Mustard reference several times to the dangers from proletarian slaves and assert that this was the one objective he had heard urging against diversification and industrialization in the South. His own observation had convinced him that slave mechanics, machine uh, manufacturers, hands, stevendors, and servants were more insubordinate than the general masses. Others observed, like James Redpath, Henry J. Raymond of the New York Times, and the Englishman William Chamber, testify to this danger. Still another visitor in 1859 and 1860 declared that while it was not too difficult to keep the plantation slave in profound arrogance, the task was much more imposing with those in the cities. This has alarmed their matters, and they are sending them off as fast as possible to the plantations where as if the tomb no sight or sound of knowledge can reach them. The flight, too, was easier for urban slaves, particularly those working in ports or on railroads. This, he said, was an important explanation for the facts that slaves working on New Orleans, whose ever were being replaced by German and Irish workers. The city said a gentleman to be is no place for the niggers. They get strong notion into their heads and grow discontent. They ought every one of them to be sent back onto the plantation. Another consideration linking the development of an industrial life with slaves discount is indicted by the conversation between James Redpath and the Asian Negro, the latter remarks. That since railroad, the railroad line has been introduced, the slave had been forced to work harder than ever before. 
What was the explanation? Why said the slave? You see, it is so much easier to carry off the produce and sell it now. Because they make or because they take it away so easy. And so the slaves are drove more and more to raise it. He who prepared a table of outstanding periods of slaves' rebellions and another of the year of economic depression will be struck by their great similarities. Again, as in the case of population trend, which were largely affected by economic conditions, this conjunction of events will be shown in the course of the description of the plots and uprisings themselves. And again, as in the former case, it is not possible to prove a casual connection between suffering occasions by depression and outbreaks against enslavement, but it does appear reasonable to suggest that such a relationship exists. Some evidence of the disastrous effects of economic depression section or depression within a slave society upon the worker's slave is permit. It is moreover necessary to present this evidence of some detail for the romanticistic who have described the old self have pictured a close self sustaining idly almost social socialistic society immune to such annoying things as business cycles yet business cycles have a way of affecting all profit seeking private ownership would depend industrial such as tobacco rice cotton hemp sugar and slaves risings business of the antebellum self in response to a Corey James Madison declared in 1819 and this is what he quotes The general conditions of slaves must be influenced by ration costs amongst these are one an ordinary price of food on which the quality and quality allowed them will more or less depends this indicating that slaves will be made aware of periods of economic distress in a very real manner namely in the kinds and amounts of food they receive. Perceived evidence of this is not easy to discover, but some examples are available. Thus, remarks made during the severe depression of the 1790s by George Washington, a very effect efficient businessman, are predominant. It is demonstratively clear he wrote that on the estate Mount Vernon I have more working Negroes by a full Monty than can now be employed to any advantage in the farming system. Sometimes most 
be done or I shall be ruined. For all the money in addition to what I raised by crop and rent that have been received for land sold within the last four years to the amount of $50,000 has scarcely been able to keep me afloat. One of Washington's prospective land buyers during this critical time, the Englishman Richard Parkinson, declared, It is well known that General Washington did not, in some seasons, raise so much from his land as well kept his people. Slaves with the addition of a very numerous fishery. An escaped slave who had worn his chain in eastern Virginia during approximately these same years wrote, I am convinced that in nine cases out of ten, the hardship and suffering of the colored population of Lower Virginia is attributable to poverty and distress of its owners. In many instances, an estate scarcely yield enough food to feed and clothe the slave in a comfortable manner without allowing anything for the support of the master and family. Can I you can hear me good in the chat room? Give me um a notification one or two. And please like the video. And Trinity, you know, please um if you could share the link. Thanks. And let everybody know. The attempt to avoid war by embargoing and non importation and the war of eighteen twelve itself by Shattering the foreign market for cotton and tobacco. And in the later case, by acute invasion and consequent devastation, brought severe economic crisis to the South. In the course of noting and describing this belief, brief but pointing reference to the slave population were made. Thus, a gentleman wrote from Charleston, December 24, 1811. The supply, of course, Negro clothes for the intimate use of the present season has fallen short about one-third. Not a single piece can now be had. Indeed, all that was remained on the hand from last year. Importation has been brought up in the course of the summer by speculatory and has been sold at a very large advance. Many planters are now buying blankets and cutting them up to make clothing for their Negroes. When the situation of slave owners would be, should the non-importation continue for 12 months longer, can easily be imagined. And most excited, the well-grounded apprehension of every reflecting citizen, the wretched situation of a large proportion of our slaves is sufficient to bar up the feelings of the most Filthy hearts. John Rudolph, whose opposition to Madison war policy may have made him undoubtedly lack remorse, lack of remorse, latent in the same of in the summer of eighteen fourteen. The ruins of his own crops 
and stated, I fear a famine next summer. The poor slaves I fear will suffer dreadfully. A few months later, he affirmed that, and the searching of misery of war penetrate even into the hoves of the shivering Negro whose tattered blankets and short allowance of salt bears witness to the glories of that administration under which his master is content to live. In connection with Madison's statement of 1819 that the price of articles determine the quantity and quality given the slave may be note in rather long letter from a Mr. E. Jackson dated Savannah, Georgia, January 9th, 1814 to the Connecticut Senator David Daggett. Mr. Jackson declared that the last cotton crop was very bad, perhaps one-fourth of the usual amount due to drought early in the season, excessive rain later a hurricane throws in to destroy the seaboard cotton and an unusual early frost as an additional guarantee of a poor year. He noted a fairly good rice crop, but added that the embargo made it sale impossible, and he pointed out to add to our misfortune every article used to be planter in exaggeration of high and the period from 1819 to 1832 was similar to that of the 1790s natural disaster aggregative and the distress brought on by the economic system. In 1826, a severe drought hit the Old South, particularly Virginia and North Carolina. A letter from Richmond date May the 23rd stated that well had dried up and that the growing crops and rye, oats, clover, etc. is much injured in the field. A later letter declares, we do not suppose there was ever known in this section of this country a summer season so dry as the present. The high price of provision of all kinds consequence of this state of thing adding to the scarcity of fruit has caused much distress among many poor people. The Southwest was visited by a drought in 1827 which blasted the hopes of the planters of Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana. Not only were their commodities crops affected, but in addition, the corn was disastrously hit so that it is certain that there will be a scarcity of that indispensable grain. Excessive rain early in the season of 1829 in Louisiana damaged crops and said a resident these may really be called hard times. A communication from Opelousas in the state date in August 12, 1829 declared that the crops were very poor and corn scarce. Our situation is critical in the extreme similar conditions were at, at this time reported as prevailing in South Carolina. The next year, again, a dis decreasing drought 
plagued much of the Old South. Now, before I continue, in regards to, you know, the enslavement, in America, there's certain things they do mention in history. But I could not recall, and people could give me this answer in the comments of this stream or this video, that did they ever talk about any droughts in America during the 19th century in regards to how they were able to sustain themselves? During the time of enslavement or just America in general? Because this has not been talked about in the history. I know it's been not talked about because they don't mention this. So find it interesting in this book as I'm reading that. That the pilgrims or the Europeans during this time had a drought where they would almost. It's like, the, it's like back in time when in Europe when they had famine and drought for years. And... In time, they used to eat themselves or find other means to survive. Usually people of African Indian descent, the lands that we used to live in, we didn't experience these type of droughts. And if we did, we found ways and contingencies to get around that. So it's kind of interesting that this book is laying that out during the times of slave revolts and how it just played into a lot of revolts during that time. But let's continue. All right. Over a period of some dozens of years, Robert Haynes, center of from South Carolina, alleged that very grassy to be growing in the streets of Charleston. It said, "He, we buy from the city of the country. What do we behold? Fields abandoned, agriculture droppings. Our slaves like their masters, working harder and fearing worse." The planters strive with unveiled efforts avert the ruins which has been before him. A very clear statement of the relationship between economic depression and the condition of the slave appear in the remarks of a New Orleans Senate editor in 1837 in the year of repudication in Mississippi reference to the planters. He wrote... Salaries of life for the support of themselves and the rest of their Negroes in many places, heavenly planters crumpled their slaves to fish for the for the means of sustaining rather than selling them at much or at such ruinous rates. There at this moment, thousands of slaves in Mississippi that know not where the next more so is to come from, but the master must be ruined to save the wretches from being starved, or the wretches to be from being starved. The early forties were bad years. One Mississippi planner, Dr. M. W. Phillips, telling his diary, March twenty fifth, eighteen forty. The times seemed as hard that no one could think would be worse. The abyss or the abyss men in the land cannot raise money. A vast number broke. Many are running off their Negroes. The state is bankrupt. One of these able men was Andrew Jackson, 
or Andrew Jackson, who at this time was in a sore financial distress and largely the fault of his adopted son, heavily in debt, he owed a rather large plantation, some 1,100 acres in Calhoun County, Mississippi, and learned early in 1841 that the slaves there were shivering and starving provision out in those shoes in 1855 near famine conditions prevail in much of the south with apparently Georgia, Alabama, Louisiana most seriously affected. People offered to work for a peck of corn and days and were trained down other lives for days at a time. On boiled wheat called peppergrass, while occasionally the bodies of individuals who had starved to death, including slaves, were discovered. The next year, a drought destructive to a degree almost without precedent afflicted portions of the slave. Areas, especially in Virginia and Texas, thus a letter from Huntsville in the letter states dated July 22, 1856, declare our perspective in this country are of the gloomiest character. For 12 weeks, not a drop of rain has fallen within 10 miles of this place. Corn crops have failed entirely. Cotton is nearly gone. The grass is dried out. And the cattle is suffering to a great extent. Generally, constraint nation prevails throughout the centuries. Depression directly caused another form of suffering. For it increased the practice of leasing or selling of slaves. These, particularly the latter from usual amongst the most dreaded fates that could Befail a slave. The hardship and heartaches, instance of selling of human beings, nobly forced sales when considerable consideration of families' ties had even less weight than usual, are too well known and too patent or patent to require any extensive decisions. Leasing was also generally distressed or dis distasteful to slaves. A South Carolina judge in 1839 states as an acceptance fact that hired slaves are commonly treated more harshly or with less care and attention than those in possession of their own. Wow. That's crazy. In the terrible, difficult years of 1796, Thomas Jefferson himself sold in the open market a dozen of his slaves, and George Washington, too, despite scruples, was seriously considering the leasing of some of his slaves. An English traveler in Virginia at almost that time commit upon the worn-out appearance of the state and upon the practice of leasing of slaves indulged in by master who were overstock as for And there's a side note for this, which you can read yourself. 
Um, okay. Outright sales during economic distress. The comments of the South Carolina Republican Wade Hampton during the embargo induce stagnation is typically of the situation. There remains nothing between the hammer of the sheriff Ocanary and their planters. Property and indeed sales of this description have multiplied to an astonishing degree in very or in every part of the state. In attempts to asserting the cause of slave rebellions, and efforts have been made to show that when depression came to the antebellum South, the slave felt this in worsened condition. And obviously it makes sense why a slave will suffer more because you were a slave, your property. So obviously the master's going and his family's going to make sure he attends himself and his family before a slave or black people. So most likely in my mind, a lot of slaves and a lot of slave masters lost money because most of their slaves had to do one or two things. Either they had to leave that slave master or they just died starving during economic hardships in regards to the crops and everything that the master needed to sustain himself and his family and his business. What, however, were the ordinary circumstance under which the field slave and the vast majority live for as a New York Times book reviewer once quantitatively confessed or confessed the Negro being slaves had a grievance opinions as to extent of this grievance or even so to its existence have and do differ or defer. But to understand the source from which well up the desperation needed by any people who risk death to after by force their status and investigation of the status is required. Here is a typical day in cotton picking times described by a resident of Mississippi in a parishion of slavery or partisan of slavery as he states the hands and regardly rose by a large bell or horn about the first dawn of day or early so that they are ready to enter the field as soon as there is sufficient lights to distinguish the boils. As the dew are extremely heavy and cold, each hand is provided with a blanket coat or wrapper which is kept close around him until the dew is particularly evaporated by the sun. The hand remains in the field until it is too dark to distinguish the cotton having brought their meal with them for the purpose of collecting the cotton each hand is furnished with a large basket and two coarse bags about the size of a pillow caused with a strong strap to spread them from a neck or shoulder and the basket is left at the end of the row and both bags taken along when one bag is at full as it can well be crammed it is laid down in a row and the hand begins to fill the second 
in the same way. As soon as the second is filled, the return to the basket, taking the other bag as it passing it and empties both into the basket, treating or treading it down well to make it contain his whole day's work. The same process is repeated until night when the basket is taken upon his head and carried to the scuffle yard to be weighed. There the overseer meets all hands of the scales with the lamp state and whip the ladder to be used on these hose works is considered insufficient or unsatisfactory. That was the working day from sunup to sundown, or from dark to dark. Six days a week with minor variations depending upon the season, crops, and location. Apparently, the gangs were a leisure of Sunday, wrote the editor of a Florida slaveholder records, except for some slight sales or slight special tasks, such as loading a wagon with cotton bales. Likewise, no work at night was recorded except for the boiling of syrup in emergency occasionally by the frosting of the sugar cane, except sometimes the making of rope to serve as plow lines, which later may have been a penalty for misdeeds. It should be noted that this reference only to work performance for the master and does not consider the labor often found necessary by slaves for themselves such as themselves cooking tailoring shoes mending furniture repairing or the tending of personal gardening occasionally permits the negro as a supplementary source of nourishment when the day work was done they went back to what said a Polish poet, Julian Eurasian Nemitzu, who visited Washington Mount Vernon Estate for two weeks in 1798. We enter some Negro's hut for their habitation cannot be called house. They are far more miserable than the poorest of the cottage of our peasants. The husband and wife sleeps on a miserable bed, the children on the floor, more revealing what may be called a Sean Clarence project discussed two generations later by a Mississippi planner who apparently considers herself particularly enlightened. He regrets the fact that planters do not always reflect that there is more sickness and consequently greater laws of life from the decaying logs of Negro house, open floors, leaky roofs, crowded rooms, than all other cause of conditionings or combinating them urge them to bear that in mind and do as he did. There being upward of 150 Negroes on the plantation, I provide for the 24 house made of Hugh post oak covered with cypress 16 by 18 which close planks floors and good chimney and elevate 
two feet from the ground. That is another six people living in a house, a room 16 by 18 feet. And this wasn't proudly held up as a model for others to emulate. Clothes were either housebound or short staple, cheap cotton, or bought from New England firms as a special Negro clove being a very coarse mixture of cotton and hemp or imported from England. The material in this case being Osenberg, again, exceedingly coarse in the clove. The clothing was just like needles when it was new, never did had a to scratch or back. Just wiggle your shoulders and your back was scratch. The men outfit consists of canvas trousers and a cotton shirt. Women of a cotton shirt or cotton shift and a heavier dress over it. Children when wearing anything wore a single towel shirt or gano bag. Growing up to occasion wore nothing but gano bags. Cornmeal was the basic food. This mixed with water and feet and fried on a flat edge on a hoe, hoe cakes was the main dish. Rations were roughly appointed according to production of the field workers and the full three quarters and half, half hand as they were divided, with the most efficient getting of the largest portion. Thus, a North Carolina plantation journal shows that full hand received very much more than the others often called idlers. So that in one case too, workers receive 104 pecks of meals annually while six idlers in the same family were given 196 pecks. Another combination of two workers and five idlers saw the former get 105 pecks and the latter 126 pecks. And still another case, both two workers and four idlers Got the same amount of meal, 104 pecks or two pecks a week for two people in one case and for four people in the other. A Florida plantation recorded of 1847 shows a somewhat similar situation. The average weekly rations of meals for men was about three pecks, but slaves whose names are preceded by old receive from one to two pecks about what the woman receives. These supplies were meant to be used for the feeding of the children too. Pork or herring or molasses was also not infrequent parts of the ration, with again relatively productive being a most important determinant of the quantity of quantity allowed. Further variations in the food allowance were caused by economic conditions, as already demonstrated and by the seasons and the amount of work being done. Any indication of the importance of the later items, which is tied in with the question of economic conditions, appear in the following conversation, reported by a Southern magazine, they say, 
They said, Tony, that the doctor is a hard man to live with. He wants a great deal done, said one slave to another. Yes, replied Tony, but the given plenty of good fat pork, which helps mightily where they ain't no work, they ain't no eating. And we'll stop right there. And that ends this part of the section of chapter five. Um, and like always, with every reading, please read your comments, your thoughts and feelings, and anything that you have in during each reading and the chapters of American Negro Slave Revolts. Um, I hope you enjoyed this short reading and stream. Be on the lookout for the next stream of reading. Um, as I look. And there's some questions. So this will end tonight, um, today's um, session. Be on the lookout for the next session. And we're going to deal with part two. Actually, it's going to be chapter five, section two. And wrapping up the conclusion of... Um, and wrapping up the conclusion of what is titled... The Furthering Cause of Rebellion. Thank you for listening. Take care now. Goodbye.